<laughs> Starting it off right. <laughs> Welcome to Seattle on Tap. I am Courtney Jacobson. And I am Ashley Toten. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Happy day to you. And to you. <laughs> Ding. <laughs> How's your day been? Well, it's been hectic, you know, as usual. <laughs> it's been fine, though. Um, I got things done faster than the panic in my mind made me think I would when I woke up this morning. I woke up thinking, I actually even got up before I normally do because I was like, I'm so behind. I, I just woke up in that, like, panic brain of I've got to finish all these things and yeah I was fine I got got everything done <laughs> I hate waking up like that it's so frustrating it kind of for me anyway it like stays with me all day so even nothing I'll be like I'm so stressed out about this stupid thing that has no reason to be stressful at all oh for sure I once I got everything done I was like I'm forgetting something and I'm going to find out at the worst point possible I'm sure <laughs> so basically my little anxiety monster in my brain woke me up early and has been hanging on all day <laughs> i don't know why it made for some reason you saying that reminded me of that show um oh fuck what is the show called with the kids the i'm going through changes what the hell is that show called i don't know i don't know but they have like all these kids going through like their hormonal fluctuations and shit, but they have hormone monsters that follow them around. Oh it's called God. Big Mouth. Oh, I don't know this show. I, I actually have not seen that. Hilarious. But anyway, I was imagining you being waken up by one of the hormone monsters. <laughs> the one, like, I mean, I am getting older in my days, maybe. <laughs> 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 I mean, wouldn't that just be the kicker to this year? <laughs> also, by the way, <laughs> you get to start the lady life change time way earlier than most people. <laughs> it's not your time. <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Although, since I am always cold, I welcome some hot flashes. <laughs> now, but I'm probably going to be like, fuck. <laughs> maybe it'll even something out. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Maybe I'll finally be like, hey, I could go through a day without a sweater. <laughs> I don't know. I like right now, I'm eyeing my hoodie over there in the corner like, what's up? Maybe I should put you on. How <laughs> <laughs> you doing over there? Yep. <laughs> Uh, enough about me and my crazy brain. How are you today? <laughs> uh, I'm okay. I woke up not stressed out, but I got a lot of shit done. I've got some bagel dough rising on the counter. Ooh. I have a batch of soap behind my laptop because I didn't know where else to put it. Because <laughs> I've been making soap for people and I just have it like piling up on me. <laughs> <laughs> like the bricks to which I bury myself is just going to be fucking soap, I guess. Um, yeah, it's been kind of just a home, like trying to get shit done around the house day. Yeah, basically. Yeah, I'm excited for when the soap you gave me f is 
totally done curing because I keep sniffing it. <laughs> I'm going to have to give you a peppermint one too. Ooh. Help wake me up in the mornings or let's be honest, midday when I finally get around to a shower. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that you're finally not stressed out, yeah, you also have a beer in your hands. I do. What are you drinking? I am drinking a beer that I um, ordered from your place of business. Uh, <laughs> went and picked up from you. That was a fun day. Um, it is the Proctor India Pale Ale from Narrows Brewing Company in Tacoma, Washington, where I was born. Wait, wait. <laughs> um, Proctor is actually like a little neighborhood within Tacoma. Um, it's one of the nicer neighbor. It's very. It's one of the older, nicer neighborhoods. Lots of really old houses. It's super cute. Um, but anyway, so they say about their beer here, <clears throat> they say Proctor IPA is a sessionable hop forward ale featuring a double dry hopping of citra and spelt malt uh, base, sorry, spelt malt base with aromas of grapefruit and passion fruit and a bready lighter bodied finish. Proctor IPA is vibrant in all the ways the neighborhood is. Cool. And it is. It's nice. um, when I first take a sip, it's kind of bitter right off the bat, but then that quickly fades away to that kind of more, like they were saying, bready finish. Um, not too fruity. It is a little citrusy, but, you know, just a little bit, just enough to really make it refreshing. Mm -hmm. I could see myself drinking this pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see how that goes. Right. <laughs> what are you drinking? <laughs> uh, I am drinking the Crux Fermentation Project's uh, Pert Near Fresh Hop IPA of 2020, which is a Centennial Fresh Hop IPA. Um, I was telling you, I kind of cracked this open because I can't ever contain myself and just crack mm -hmm. my beer open before we actually start recording every fucking <laughs> week. But, um, it's honestly a little more malty than I would normally like. However, it is very drinkable, super yeah. well balanced. It's got some darker citrusy kind of notes, some resiny flavors, mm. uh, a tiny, tiny bit of sweetness from the malts, but overall okay. really well balanced. Um, Centennial hops are kind of a, I feel like a not as robust flavor. Like every fresh yeah. hop, this year that I've had that Centennial, it's been a little more mild. Yeah. So it's not going to be like chewing on hops. It's a little more mellow. Yeah. Good. So, yeah. Is that what was in the, the fresh fluff we were all somehow drinking completely were, the other day? Oh, that's right. Okay. Which is delicious. It's, it's so good, but they were still pretty mellow. Yeah. Really it, good. Though. I mean, that's matchless. They know what they're doing. Yeah. They don't. That's true. But they with crust. Yeah, correct. It's fucking great beer. Mm -hmm. That was pretty funny, though, that <laughs> quite a few of us that are friends through Instagram are posting damn near the same day. <laughs> yeah. Today we're drinking this. <laughs> you on Instagram, you probably saw all of that, like, you're drinking it? Me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a bunch of beer nerds. <laughs> Guilty. 
Um, well, I go first today. Should I just, uh, get to it? Lay it on me. Um, today I'm telling a story that I've kind of put in the back burner a few times because I just really felt nervous about doing it enough justice. It's, it's a very important story and it was the idea was given to me by my friend and actually old high school boyfriend, Matt Medellin. So thanks, Matt, for sending this idea. Um, going to tell you about the story of the murder of James Reeb, Reverend James Reeb, and in a way how that spurred the signing of the Voter Rights Act. Oh, neat. So here we go. Well um, before I get into the murder, I'll tell you a little bit about who the heck James Reeb even was. Um, James Reeb went by Jim to his friends. He was born on New Year's Day in 1927 in Wichita, Kansas. And um, as a young kid, he and his family actually moved from Kansas to Casper, Wyoming because of the Dust Bowl. And it was actually making him pretty sick. There was a pretty extensive period of time, a few months, in fact, that he was just bedridden and his mom laid by his bed and would put like wet washcloths or wet cloths over his face so he could breathe because the Dust Bowl was just ex making him super sick. So they moved. Um, after graduating high school in 1945, Jim joined the army at the tail end of World War II. And even though his commitment to the ministry actually would make him exempt from having to serve, he just felt like it was something he wanted to do. He wanted to be a part of serving his country. Um, after 16 months of service, he was honorably discharged and he went on to further schooling or further his schooling at Casper Junior College. He then went from there to St. Olaf College. That's where he earned his AB cum laude in the year 1950. Shortly after graduating, he married his wife Marie in August of 1950. Uh, he then went off to further his schooling even more at the Princeton Theological Seminary, so the Princeton for, for churchy people. <laughs> uh, and he got his Bachelorate of Divinity, and that was in 1953. He was then ordained just three days after graduating as a Presbyterian minister. And then he and his wife moved to Philadelphia because he accepted a position as the chaplain at the Philadelphia General Hospital. Um, so basically up to this point, he's, he grew up Presbyterian. He's kind of just, he knows he wants to live a really pious life. He knows he really wants to follow that path. And he's really just kind of following it in a way how he was, how he grew up. Like he was taught that 
he was raised Presbyterian, so that was the path he went in. However, as he was the chaplain, and if you don't know, the chaplain is basically like a, a religious counselor at a hospital. So if you're there because a loved one is about to die, or if you're, you know, nearing that stage, um, you have the choice to have a chaplain of your faith come and kind of help you and your family talk about end of life things. And so he was the Presbyterian chaplain at this hospital. Anyway, um, as he did with everything in life, he really took this seriously and he really wanted to be the best he could at this position. So he went back to school to be a better counselor. <laughs> uh, this time he went to Conwell School of Theology and that is where he earned a master's in sacred theology. It's called an STM, but it was a, a master's in theology. Uh, this is where he started um, <clears throat> actually steering a little bit away from the Presbyterian Church. He started getting a little bit more of a glimpse of other religions. And as he got a little bit older, and as the times were really unfolding in the U.S., uh, he started really just wanting to be more involved in everything that was going on socially. And the Presby Presbyterian faith was a little too traditionalist for him. So he started focusing on a faith that would, that actually did focus on community and social issues, which to him at the time was the Unitarian Church. <clears throat> in March of 1957, he resigned from his chaplain position, and that's when he reached out to the Unitarian Church. He then started his path to become ordained, an ordained minister through the Unitarian religion. Um, and that was, of course, going to allow him to focus more on the civil rights movement that's happening at the time. So here we go. <laughs> um, this was, so part of him working towards becoming an ordained minister with this church, you, there's a process. You have to prove that you really are um, just committed to their theology, their style, their beliefs. Burps. Um, <clears throat> so he worked with the Philadelphia West Branch YMCA. And in the time he worked there, he was able to abolish their racial quota system that basically was not great for the Black and Hispanic communities. And he even started a busing program that would bring youth to and from the YMCA every day. Um, he then uh, moved to Washington, D.C., and after three years as the assistant minister at the All Souls Church, which ended up being his final kind of residency church, <clears throat> well, no, not final, but he maintained a deep connection with that church. Anyway, uh, 
so after three years as the assistant minister there, he was ordained in the Unitarian faith, and that was in 1962. Then he's a minister there. He spends a few years doing that. And in 1964, he accepted the position as community relations director for the American Friends Service Committee's Boston Housing Program. In other words, he was able to work with the housing program in the quote unquote rougher areas of Boston and help with help focus on desegregation. So he finally got his his dream position. Most other people were like, that's the position nobody wants, but that was what he fought for. He wanted to work with not just with, but in the civil rights movement. He wanted to be physically be a person that made a difference. So he moved his family in, immersed his family in these poorer black and Hispanic neighborhoods of Boston. So yes, he's moving his family, they're immersed, they're trying to bring awareness to the segregation that is still going on, even though it's not supposed to be happening. <clears throat> so on, let's see, on March 7th, 1965, he and his wife, Marie, are sitting down watching the nightly news and they see the coverage of what later came to be known as Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama. Jim and his wife, Marie, are watching as they see police brutally beating these peaceful black citizens just trying to walk from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery. And the moment they get a little bit, like not even fully all the way over the bridge, police are yelling at them to not go any further and begin beating them brutally. I mean, it's called Bloody Sunday for a reason. Okay, so for, <laughs> for those that don't have the details of this event and have maybe not been paying attention to things going on in the world lately because these events have actually been brought up uh, quite a bit lately um, with John Lewis dying, things like that. Anyway, um, the, this was all basically the, the march from Selma to Montgomery was because they were trying to bring awareness to the fact that vote, voting rights for black American citizens in Alabama specifically were being denied. They had won the vote to, even though they had earned the right to vote, they had just as much right as anybody else. They weren't being allowed to register in this area of Alabama. In fact, any time a black citizen went into the registrar's office, they were given a half inch thick stack of papers to fill out and a literally, a literacy test, and some were even forced to read aloud and interpret the Alabama State Constitution. This is a lengthy document that actually includes the line, and I quote, 
to establish white supremacy in this state, end quote. That fucking line is still in the Alabama state constitution to this day. Gross. Gross. So gross. Okay, so back to the march on Bloody Sunday. Um, The next day, March 8th, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King put out a call to all clergy members around the United States to come and march with them on Tuesday the 9th. Um, Jim Reeb got this message and he looked at his wife and he said, I have to go. I just have to go. This is what my life's work is about. I just got to do it. And his wife, Marie, wasn't happy. She, she was scared, but at the same time she understood and she loved her husband and she believed in him. So she wasn't about to hold him back. So he was on the plane by the next morning and he marched with Dr. King on the Ed- Edmund Pettus Bridge that Tuesday, March 9th. And that's where people had been beaten just a matter of days before. So at the midway point, if you don't remember, um, on that Tuesday, Dr. King actually, who was helping march all these people across, he stopped people at roughly the midway point and he knelt down and had everyone kneel down and pray with him. And after praying, he stood up and he had everyone turn around and go back because he, he f- could not bring himself to walk all of these peaceful people marching for their own rights back into another probably more horrific situation of being beat because there was a, once again the sheriff and all the police and a whole bunch of racist white assholes waiting on the other side <laughs> to do it again. So even though it upset a lot of people because they felt like they had arrived there for no reason and marched almost to Montgomery for no reason. It, he just couldn't bring himself to have that many people hurt and potentially murdered. So, um, that night, Jim Reeb and two other Unitarian ministers had dinner at one of the only one of two only integrated restaurants in Selma. And and as they left, they were followed by three or four, I'm going to have you remember that number, three or four um, men who yelled out, hey, N-words, because if you were, even if you were a white person, um, if you were there for Black rights, they would call you that. Um, He yelled that at them. And the ministers started walking faster, wouldn't even look in the direction. They just were like, we got to get out of here. We're just here to be peaceful, you know. So they start walking fastly to try and avoid the racist thugs. And unfortunately, the men ran up and started hitting them. Sadly, Jim Reeb was a little bit behind just position of where the three men were walking. He unfortunately was the guy that got the brunt of it. 
Um, and these guys actually struck him in the head with clubs and that actually caused Jim to fall down. So they kicked and hit him repeatedly. And then basically as soon as it started, they felt they had done enough damage. They got up and ran off the guys, the, the white thugs. Jim at this point, just, I was trying to, um, you know, I don't remember 27 to 64. So, okay. All right. So he's like our, like somewhere around our age, probably 65. Yeah. So yeah, he was thirties, early mid thirties. Um, okay. So the two men that were with Jim Reeb, Reverend Clark Olson and Reverend Orloff Miller, they helped Jim up um, because he was obviously out of it. He had just been beaten and he had been clubbed in the head. Uh, they helped him, they helped walk him to a place that they had been told to go to should they run into trouble because there were a few different kind of civil rights hubs for people that had come into town. And um, it was, this was their little civil rights safe haven. It was the Boynton Insurance Agency. So they walk him over to there. They tell the lady that was there that, you know, they had been beaten by some, some white supremacist, essentially. And an ambulance was called there. Uh, but because Jim Reeb was there as part of the civil rights movement, he wouldn't be seen at any of the quote unquote white hospitals. So he had to go to, um, he had to go to a black run and four blacks uh, medical clinic. And the doctors quickly saw that his head injury required a neurosurgeon. Mm-hmm. So the, the ambulance then had to take him to the university hospital in Birmingham, which was about a two hour drive from where they were. Yeah. I could kill somebody. Hmm. Any of that could have killed somebody that waiting that long to get that treatment could cause people to have an aneurysm or any Uh number of issues. Fuck. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, but wait, it gets worse. Oh, good. <laughs> yes, it wasn't bad enough. Okay, <laughs> so the ambulance gets a flat tire just outside of town. <laughs> I had an alcohol beer and I couldn't yell. My arm went straight in the uh-huh. air. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they stop and try to radio for another ambulance. They have to go over to another, you know, like kind of safe for blacks business and ha- and call for an ambulance because their radio some for some odd reason isn't working. Um, anyway, as they're waiting, a car full of white men comes over to the ambulance. They start kind of knocking on the door and kind of poking their heads around and like, hey, what's going on? Just kind of basically being menacing giving a very strong kind of scary presence um 
Yeah. And that's when, thankfully, another ambulance showed up. And so at this point, it is a black man is the driver of the ambulance. There is a doctor in the ambulance that also happens to be black. And then it's James Ray, James Reeb or Jim, sorry. Um, and then his two friends. So three white men and two black men in this ambulance. And then some racist people show up. And as they're having to physically transfer Jim Reeb's cot um, to the other ambulance, the white thugs are kind of like standing in the way and being very intimidating and menacing. And um, one of the men just kind of under his breath just says, just please don't. And while the guys, the, the white thug guys were we're definitely kind of being invasive in space, your, your personal space bubble. They did not physically do anything. They just were very verbal. And so they, but everyone felt like their life was being threatened, you know? Okay. So they finally get James Reeb to the hospital. They're going way over to way over the speed limit at some points, taking curves, feeling like they're about to, flip the fucking ambulance because they're going so fast. <laughs> um, the neurosurgeon who was on call that night gets there just before the ambulance does. And he said that when he got there, he couldn't believe how packed the ER was because so many people were expecting him to be taken there. So they just went there. Reporters, just curious people, whatever. And when he said that when James Reeb got there, he was barely breathing and um, was in bad shape. Uh, also, all of these people crowning the ER were actually getting in the way of the nurses and the doctors to do their job and help Reeb. So... <laughs> That was another delay and problem. Like, get the fuck out of here, right? <laughs> <laughs> Gee, I wonder why there's so much security at hospitals these days. Are they telling people to get out of the room and they don't need to be there? Right? So back in Boston, poor Marie Reeb gets a call from their minister uh, telling her that Jim had been attacked. He tries to keep it vague, but he wants to make sure he tells her before she has to hear it on the news, because this is obviously a pretty major deal. Yeah. Um, she, he tells her to, that she needs to make arrangements to get there as soon as possible. So she gets, she gets on the phone, she gets a, a plane ticket, and by the time she gets to Birmingham, um, midday on Wednesday, I'll just remind you that this all happened on a Tuesday night. And so she gets there Wednesday midday. So she, she booked it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it had been coming up on 24 hours since the attack by the time she gets there. Uh, and he was on life support, sadly, by the time she got there. So she didn't actually get to communicate with him. 
just kind of at him, like holding his hand and talking to him, but he wasn't able to communicate back to her. So um, he ended up being in the hospital for two days before the doctors came in and said, there's just nothing we're going to be able to do. And he ended up having um, some issues. His heart ended up, you know, kind of just given out and they decided not to revive him at that point. So thankfully three white men were arrested on charges of assault with intent to murder. Um, it's a charge of, they were a blah, blah, blah words. Okay. Arrested on charges of assault with intent to murder three white ministers. Uh, these men were Elmer Cook, William Stanley Hoggle and Naaman Hoggle. They were tried by an all-white jury. Boo. Is. <laughs> of very much their peers. And I wrote, surprise, surprise. They were acquitted. Because in Selma, Alabama, they don't they don't sell their own down the river so people lied and later admitted that they lied on the stand and um so none of these men went to jail and so the defense attorney for jim reeb argued that oh no sorry the defense attorney uh for these horrible men argued that Jim Reeb wasn't actually hurt that bad when these guys jumped and beat him, but instead the civil rights movement needed a white martyr. So his friends actually beat him more when they were all in the um, ambulance. Well, that makes so much sense. Not like what the fuck is wrong with people. Right. And Ooh. that, that is what people to this day in Selma era, Arizona, sorry, in Selma, Alabama, um, have decided to believe. I'm going to say decided because I think they all know the truth. But there are certain people that to this day will say that that's what happened because they're fucking racist. Anyway, um, so uh, this all did actually help. Sadly, it did help the matter of the black voting rights movement, though. Um, I say sadly because, you know, you wouldn't want someone's death. And from reports I've read and heard, this is obviously not something that Jim Reeb would have wanted. He wouldn't have wanted to be a martyr in any way. Um, but it did work because uh, just months later, Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act into effect on August 6th, 1965. This bill made it illegal to impose restrictions on federal, state, and local elections that were designed to deny the right to vote for Black people. In other words, you can't black you can't block Black voters. Yeah, you can't give them a six hundred page essay <laughs> and make them stand up and recite the preamble and all this other bullshit. So remember earlier how I said, remember that there were three or four attackers? Yes. Yeah. Uh, turns out that there were definitely four. 
the fourth man managed to escape ever being accused or even punished or just even having to really talk about what he'd done for 53 years. It was only about 11 days before he died that he finally admitted what he'd done, that he had even had a part in any of this to two journalists. Andrew Beck Grace and Chip Brantley spent about three years in the community compiling evidence, interviewing people, and they even got a hold of an eyewitness that never, she admitted to them she lied on the stand. She was one of the very few people, kind of a lone eyewitness that actually saw the entire thing go down. She knew the guys that did it and she held her tongue her whole, I mean, this whole time. And sorry, Blitz just anyway. barked. <laughs> huh? I said, sorry, Blitz just barked. <laughs> I think he got mad. <laughs> He's <laughs> mad about it too. <laughs> All right, so these men, um, Andrew Beck Grace and Chip Brantley, were able to find uh, the name of and interview the fourth man, who was Bill Portwood. And he, in his final days, he, he still basically talked about how um, he regretted a lot of his part in it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, because he ran with this crowd, he, this is kind of his whole sh thing he did. Um, he couldn't not do it. Anyway, the podcast goes a lot more in depth. It's, um, it's called White Lies. It's from NPR. And I highly recommend if you care at all about this movement, if you care at all about hearing more about this, uh, it's a seven episode deep dive into this and it's honestly so worth it because while this is such a horrific thing, um, you get to hear the families, uh, like the children and grandchildren of these men, both Jim Reeb and his attackers. Yeah. Talk about how it was a horrendous thing and how it shaped their lives and None of the grand, actually one of the sons of Bill Port, or no, 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 of um, the main awful, awful guy um, that attacked Elmer Cook. One of his sons who kind of refused to talk about it to his kids mo most of his life, he ended up talking to the reporters and they explained everything they had found and played um, their recordings with Bill Portwood, basically just kind of gave that gave this guy everything they had found and he said wow um i feel hor horrible and they essentially kind of helped him change his mind and realize what really had happened and that the story his family had been telling was bullshit yeah and yeah, it's it pretty cool because at one point a few members of the opposing families get together and kind of heal and i'm not gonna cry but it's, it's worth, it's worth listening to. So that is the huge, heavy, heavy story of 
the very unfortunate martyr that Jim Reeb became. Dang, that's heavy, man. Yeah, and why we need to still keep fighting. I mean, this is not, it's not over, obviously. I think it's really cool that the, um, I mean, a lot of people are like, oh, hate's learned, you know, mm-hmm. folks that grew up with racist parents probably will become racist. Yeah. Um, it's cool that in this case with the NPR thing that those family mm-hmm. members made to face the reality of what their relatives had done. Yeah. For all of us somewhere down the line have a relative that you're like, oh, yeah, oh, yes. that's fucked up and horrible. Oh, but that yeah. doesn't mean that that's what you are or what right. you need to continue the legacy of in any way. Yeah. I good, um, as uncomfortable it is to hear about racist violence and racism in general, Yeah, we all need to learn about it. And that's exactly why. We need to learn about it and we need to... I think talking about it is actually as uncomfortable as it is at first is one of the most important things because then we can learn how to be better. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't address a thing, you don't ever heal from a thing. So our entire country needs to heal. And it's also really easy to think you understand the thing. Oh yeah. But until you hear somebody else, like the person that's actually being impacted's perspective, Mm -hmm. you might not ever understand yeah yeah i think it's really important the movie selma that came out not too terribly long ago a few years ago uh actually does touch on this to an extent but as hollywood generally does they took a teeny bit of creative license and um it's just they don't go into it quite and as they go into it as much as I think they could for their story storyline. But um, if you've seen that movie and you feel like you know about all this, I really encourage you to look it up a little bit more because I definitely learned so much more just, just by listening to that seven episodes, which, but then there, of course there's, there's honestly a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot more out there. And as always, all of our, sources are going to be on our website so there you go um i'm ready to drink some of my beer after talking about all of that i don't know about you (laughs) i uh yeah i finished mine but you know that's okay i can have a second drink but i think first we should take a quick tinkle break yes and drink back (laughs) yeah (laughs) all right brb And we're back. <laughs> oh, hello. Feeling refreshed. Yes. Ready to rock. I'm ready to sit and listen and drink and try not to interrupt too much. <laughs> I uh, also just noticed your beer is very, very light in color. Yeah. It's pretty. Let's see. I dig it. Go Narrows. Yeah. So, so <laughs> uh, my story today, I really was pretty psyched that I think I had found a thing that nobody has really talked about. And then to my horror, I was listening to a podcast last night who covered the story and I was like, fuck, because I've been really trying to find yeah. shit that people don't talk about. But 
in any case, it's still very interesting and was super fun to research. So here we go. Mm -hmm. This is the story of the Mary Celeste. And if you don't know what that is, you will find out. <laughs> On November 7th, 1872, the Mary Celeste sets off from New York City in the direction of Genoa, Italy. On board the Mary Celeste, there are seven crew members, the captain, Benjamin Spooner Briggs, Briggs's wife, Sarah, and their daughter, Sophia, who was two years old. It was November and the weather was pretty heavy going into the trip, but nothing, anything, you know, that they didn't think they could handle. A lot of ships travel in bad weather. That's been a primary source of transportation forever. Mm -hmm. And the ship was in great shape. So they set off across the Atlantic Ocean headed for Italy. But then on December 5th, 1872, a ship by the name of De Gratia, who were also headed to Italy, were traveling about 400 miles east of Azores when they saw a ship that seemed to be just sort of adrift, didn't seem to be being piloted by anyone. The captain of De Gratia, Captain David Morehouse, was shocked to see that upon further inspection, it was actually the Mary Celeste. The Mary Celeste had left New York more than a week before Morehouse's ship, and they had the same intended destination. And he ended up going up and sending, you're smirking at me really hard. Why are you smirking at me? Because I remember hearing this. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> this one is wild. Stop looking at me, swan. <laughs> I'm gonna look at you. <laughs> Shampoo is better. Okay. <laughs> and we're off. <laughs> <laughs> the Mary Celeste had left New York more than a week before Morehouse's shift, and they had the same intended destination. And he knew that the Mary Celeste should have arrived in that amount of time. So they were going to the same place, and they left a week before. Yeah. Like, why are you out here? You're supposed to be done. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So after trying to make contact with the ship, they had several attempts in doing that. They weren't getting any response. So Morehouse sent some of his crew over to do kind of a welfare check. Mm -hmm. His men arrived at the ship and called out a few more times, but no one responded. So the crew climbed aboard and did a quick walkthrough. And suddenly they realized there was no one on board the ship at all. Oh. The entire crew was missing. So creepy. Okay, bye. <laughs> um, so now, probably very confused and very concerned, the crew proceeds to poke around looking for any answers as to where they may have gone. Their inspection showed that the sleeping quarters, including all of the belongings of all the crew members, were completely untouched. There was at least six months of food and water on board, and the cargo ship had been, that the cargo the ship had been carrying, which was a shit ton of alcohol, was still there. They actually, there was 1,701 barrels of industrial strength alcohol, to be specific Ooh. about what the cargo was. Um, then they realized that the only lifeboat on the ship was also gone. And then, you know, upon further inspection, they did realize that two of the pumps uh, had been disabled. And due to this pump being out, there was a couple feet of water in the hull, but not enough that they were really worried about it. You know, mm -hmm. like sometimes water comes aboard and it's not a big deal you know under okay. a certain amount mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the ship was functioning well enough without those pumps so they weren't they were like oh well that's not that big of a deal i don't know why that would be an issue yeah. for them 
So the crew of DeGratia changed the route and attempted to get potential help, assuming that the crew actually might be in a lifeboat somewhere and needing their help. Yeah. And, you know, they also decided that probably the best thing to do, rather than leave the ship where it was, was to drive the ship, sail it back in. This is like an old school, all the sail ship. Like, it could not be a creepier setting because it right. literally looks like a ghost ship. Like, in, yeah, exactly. Envision ghost ship. <laughs> that you're there. <laughs> yeah. So creepy. <laughs> so they had a few of the men sail the ship 800 miles to Gibraltar. And like I said, the ship was in perfect con working condition. The men had no problem sailing it. Once they arrived, they had a British vice admiralty court begin a salvaging hearing, which essentially the point of this sort of a case is to decide if the salvagers, which in this case were the crew of De Gratia, were entitled to a payment from the insurance company for sa like saving the ship itself. Right. And letting it sink. Um, but one of the attorney generals in this case decided that it was a little too sketchy that the crew was missing mm -hmm. and wanted to prove without a doubt before that was decided that there was no foul play involving the crew that found the ship. Right, that it wasn't an act of piracy. And, yeah. yeah. That seems perfectly reasonable to me. Yeah. For three months, they sent out ships to search for the missing people. They had investigators comb over all of the evidence on the ship itself, but they were never able to find any answers at all, let alone any possibility of foul play. So with that, the crew of De Gratia were rewarded some of their claim. They were only rewarded about a sixth of a total amount because the ruling was not able to confirm without a doubt that the crew of De Gratia were not involved in the disappearance of the crew. Yeah. Uh, so I know how much all of us, including me, hates an unsolved case. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> unfortunately, this is one of those. Yeah. And it brings you answers, okay, well, why did the entire crew leave the ship? Under what circumstances would this happen if the ship was fully fine and well to drive around or sail around. They weren't driving. This isn't not Mario Kart. Okay. <laughs> You're like, I'm not Mario Kart. <laughs> they put the motor on and took off. <laughs> uh, there have been several theories that I'm going to run through. Uh, some of which are fucking weird, but of course there's a, the old sea monster theory, but we all know that krakens aren't like leaping out of the water, swallowing ships whole. So that is pretty quickly to rule out. I mean, yeah, they're, they're going to damage some, some ship. <laughs> uh, based upon the condition of the ship at the time it was discovered, the idea was that the ship may have been pirated, but that was quickly ruled out or at least deemed highly unlikely since the crew was missing, but their supplies, their personal valuables, food and the cargo which was mm -hmm. pretty easy to resell all that alcohol that would have been worth stealing was still all there so they were like yeah it's probably not there uh it was thought that maybe the ship had seemed damaged in some way to the crew members and that they became worried enough for their own safety that they fled the ship but there was no evidence of any major damage to the ship again yep. and you know the crew again the crew fucking drove it to be examined, so clearly that was not the problem. But there is a theory related to the potential damage that suggests that maybe there was like a leak in one of the alcohol barrels and that somehow that caused a small explosion, like either from fumes, this is like 
potent, potent alcohol. It's industrial strength, you right? Know? And they're like, well, maybe it caused a small explosion and that scared the shit out of the crew and they thought for sure they blew a hole in the floor and so they all jumped in a boat to get out of there in case the ship sank. Mm-hmm. But again, there was no obvious damage. A couple feet of water, but nothing, nothing scary. Yeah. There is even a theory that the crew dipped into those barrels and went, quote, mad after drinking the really high-proof alcohol. Right. But there was no evidence of any significant amount of alcohol missing, so that was also later ruled out. Yeah. Several other fun theories that have emerged in regard to the ship's missing crew included submarine earthquakes. Like, they were like, ah, ah, and like, were thrown <laughs> <from the ship. laughs> I wish everybody could have seen my animation of that. Um, it was the- like a full-on <laughs> cartoon. <laughs> I, I'm sort of a cartoon person, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> Uh, there's a theory that they encountered a water spout, which, by the way, if you've never watched videos of water spouts, that's like the coolest fucking thing in the whole world. There, yeah. um, <laughs> but there's a theory that a water spout came through and basically sucked them off the ship and tossed them out to sea. Yeah. And lastly, probably your favorite, yeah, <laughs> is that they were abducted by aliens. The only problem with that theory and several of the theories is that if the crew were abducted or encountered a water spout or attacked by a giant sea monster, they're not going to all run and jump into the one lifeboat to the, like a smaller vessel that seems less mm-hmm. safe and stable to be sucked off into an abyss. You know what I mean? What if they tried, but maybe a few people got away, but they sunk in the lifeboat? Oh, maybe. I don't know. Suspicious. So the aliens took them, and mm-hmm. except for like three guys that saw they were kind of sleepy down below, and they came up just as the aliens were rounding everybody up. They managed to sneak over to the lifeboat and head away, but the aliens zapped them down and they sunk. And the lifeboat was like chitty chitty bang bang and it flew off into the sky and no the <laughs> aliens zapped them no <laughs> and they sunk that must be that's it we solved it you guys i think i saw that movie <laughs> for reals though based upon the captain's log there didn't seem to be anything out of the norm like at all like yeah. everything seemed to be in complete normal organized order Mm-hmm. Although they did say that for some unknown reason, Captain Briggs had changed his course and started heading north and had marked that. And he was kind of heading up towards Santa Maria Island. And I, for, I had to look at a map because I was like, these are small fucking islands mm-hmm. off the coast of Portugal. And I really need to see this visually. Where it is. Yeah. Yeah. Tiny, tiny ass islands. But truthfully, even though he went north, it wasn't that far out of course it is strange because you'd think he'd want to go in the inlet mediterranean sea but what do i know i'm not a pilot or a captain <laughs> anywho uh mary celeste driving boats around mario kart <laughs> Zoom. Uh, <laughs> um, mary celeste did not make it very far after that log was put in or mm-hmm. that decision was made um and it was found so that entry was made on november 25th and the ship was found December 5th, and it wasn't too far, like within a, several hundred feet of where mm-hmm. the last recorded thing was. Um, 
historians and researchers are still obsessed with the story and we still have no fucking clue what happened to this maritime shit. mysteries are some of the most wild because there's no way to really i mean the water is just constantly moving around you can't just go walk up and be like oh there's some footprints here or you know it's just there's so very few ways to get traces of anything or one of my favorite series that I read about that I didn't put in because it made me laugh really hard. I figured it was worth mentioning, but it's mm -hmm. like not plausible. But somebody was like, oh my God, it was the Bermuda Triangle. And I was yeah. like, wouldn't that be near Bermuda? Just saying. Maybe, Maybe not in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. I don't know. Did you read this story? <laughs> Do you know where you are right now? Look at a map. <laughs> show, me the, show me on the map. <laughs> show me on the map where the ship hurt you <laughs> anyway oh, I'm wild. killing this week because i you know as much as i love telling y'all about serial killers and horrible things sometimes i don't want to read it <laughs> uh, yeah right i hear that this yeah like I said, my story was one I had kind of avoided for a while just for the heaviness and for the fear of not being able to do it justice. But I think you did great. And I also, I'm glad you did it um, because it's an important story in general, but especially considering what's happening in the world right now. Very so timely. Yeah. I felt like I couldn't avoid it any longer. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I don't know about you, but I don't have any shower thoughts or anything. I feel I don't either. Like we what? Oh, I don't have one either. However, okay. we got some really funny uh, reactions that I was getting texts about to the hot dog sandwich conversation. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and I was like, you guys, don't text me about it. Email us so I can read them because yeah, some of them are really funny. <laughs> So at a later date, you might be hearing a whole bunch of, um, sand we might just have an ongoing sandwich debate quote that comes in randomly. <laughs> I feel like that's a great bit of content for the tap club on our Patreon. We could have the great sandwich debate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making weird faces. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> you are not a donor to uh, Patreon for us, you can find the link on our website mm -hmm. um, or you can just go to Patreon and look us up. Uh, but we have had a few new people added Thank recently. You. Um, I know a lot of folks like their names to be read uh, on all the episodes. And if I can be really honest, I feel like that would take up a lot of time that we would rather be telling you a really dope story. But I want to make sure you all know we appreciate you. We just probably will not get to a point where we're reciting thousands and thousands of names. Wouldn't that be awesome? I hope we get to that point. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> or maybe we can have like a fun minisode where we literally just like an auctioneer start rattling off everybody's names. <laughs> yeah. Tom <laughs> and Harry and George and... <laughs> I don't know those people. <laughs> yeah, we don't. None of those people are our Patreon donors, so. <laughs> Damn it, Tom and Harry and George, get your act together. <laughs> but you should look for that. Uh, look at our Patreon. Check mm -hmm. it out. 
donate because we are adding things periodically. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have some fun stuff that we've been talking about doing. So if you'd like to see those things, we don't want to tell you all the things. Just go yeah. look at it. I've got a, I actually started a list tomorrow. You know how I love my lists. So I started writing down some things because I'm like, that's a good idea. I need to remember that. So I got ideas. Better watch out. Yep. Okay. And with that, this episode is for sure tapped. (laughs) So until next Monday, drink good local beer. And please tip your fucking bartender. Okay, bye. Toodaloo. For more information, we can be found on Instagram at Seattle underscore on underscore tap. Email at SheattleOnTap at gmail.com or our website, SheattleOnTap.com. You can also like us on Facebook. And all of the Seattle On Tap original music is provided by Bubble Bathism, courtesy of the Subterranot Recording Collective.